We're going to be in Matthew 13. We're going to take the last section of Matthew 13 and into Matthew 14. And usually we read the whole text all at once. We'll do it a little bit differently this morning. We're going to take it in two sections because it's kind of two different stories, but they're connected. So we're going to start in Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. If you remember the last few weeks, we've been talking about all the parables that Jesus was teaching. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus returns from his teaching ministry to his hometown of Nazareth. Estimates are it's been about two years since he started teaching, since his baptism. So he's been around, and word has spread about his ministry through most of the region. So undoubtedly, people would have been excited to see him come back and preach in his hometown. The uh, little boy made good, somewhat. But anticipation doesn't always equal reception. In fact, it tells us that He preached with power. They were astonished at what he taught. And it says that people were amazed at what he was saying, but even amazement at his preaching wasn't enough to bring them all the way to belief. It's such an interesting uh, situation to think they're absolutely amazed at his teaching, but then ended up rejecting him and being offended by him as a person. The two cannot be separated. And in reading this, I was just constantly stuck with why. Why was that their response to him coming back? I think it was two, two things. Familiarity and expectation. Familiarity. They had known his background. They raised their kids right next to him. Nazareth was probably under 2,000 people. Smaller town, everyone would have known each other. They saw the education he had. They saw his childhood, his adolescence, and his early adulthood. And obviously, based on their responses, there was absolutely nothing unique about most of Jesus' life, which is interesting. When he comes and preaches with power, they don't look at him and respond, oh, I, I, knew he'd, I knew he'd be special. I could see it when he was young. I knew, I knew he'd be a great preacher someday. No, what do they say? They say, isn't this Joseph's boy? Isn't, aren't these his brothers? His sisters are here. Who does this guy think he is? And this was part of their stumbling block. 
He had also spent much of his early adult life amongst them under no special circumstances. Jesus was probably mid to late 20s before he started his ministry. So 90% of his life was just spent as an everyday guy working as a carpenter among these people. So he'd spent nearly 30 years among them as nothing but a normal person, the neighbor next door. And when he came preaching with power, they said, oh, isn't that Joseph's boy? Where did he get these things? After his normal life, he leaves to start the most amazing ministry the world has ever seen. And he begins calling himself the promised Messiah. I can see why they would have rejected that. I mean, who, who does he think he is, right? He was no different from my boy. I remember babysitting him when he was little. That's probably what they were thinking. There's no way he could be the Messiah. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. A more modern way of saying it, familiarity breeds contempt. I think it boils down to their expectations. The people of Jesus' time were waiting for the promised Messiah that would come to free his people. Can you imagine their expectations? Okay, this is a conquered people. For generations, they had been occupied by the Roman Empire, who let them practice their tribal religion in their land as long as they didn't create any ruckus. But for even longer, they had had a message and a prophecy of a Messiah who would come to free them. How could they not expect a king in the classic sense? Their hope was a physical, political freedom. That was all they could see as freedom. That was what they wanted, and that was their expectation. A great ruler to raise up a great army or work a great political magic. This was not going to come from the boy who they helped raise and lived next door. The carpenter's son who's done nothing but normal life for the last 30 years. How dare he come here and say he's the promised one? We know who he really is. They were offended, and understandably so. But in your life, what are some expectations you have that have maybe caused you to miss out on what God is doing? I had high expectations once. Not, not that I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I remember graduating from college, coming out of college with a ministry degree, newly married. My expectation was I was going to go into a church, start ministry, and revival would hit the country. <laughs> what did I end up doing? I worked at Caribou Coffee for six years and became a store manager. Did I miss out on what God was calling me to? 
Not at all. At times, that's how I felt. I didn't want to be making coffee for a living. And it was a lot of work. I did not miss out on God's calling in my life. But my expectations caused me to miss what God was doing in my life. If I would have made the shift, I would have gotten so much more out of the land God brought me through. Instead of wishing he had been taking me somewhere else. And that's an important lesson to learn. Our expectations can sometimes blind us. And familiarity, Jesus just lived a normal life among them. There was nothing special about it. It was mundane. Do you sometimes fall into the trap, like I do, of thinking that God only works in the spectacular and the extreme, not the mundane? God's only active on the spiritual highs, on the conferences and retreats, great experiences, not when I'm grumpy about having to do the dishes for the 10th time this week. If it's normal, it can't be God, right? This is just boring. But he works in every circumstance, even in the boring ones. Yes, Jesus had a spectacular ministry. News was spreading all over Israel. But the people in his hometown, to them, he was just the boy next door. But for that 30 years, while he was growing up among them, just think of what God was doing among them. And they missed it because it was just normal life. I, probably four years ago now, I read a book called Ordinary. It's called Sustainable Faith in a Radical and Restless World. It hit me hard back then, and it hits me even harder now, at least this passage. He, in here, he tells the story of a girl who had basically the same growing up experience I did. Went through youth group, was conference after retreat after conference after retreat, then went to a Bible college, conference after retreat after conference after retreat, and it's a spiritual roller coaster of highs and great spiritual experiences. She was sold out for Jesus and decided to become a missionary and spent years in Africa working with orphans. And then she came back to the U.S. years later and started a family. And here's what she wrote. And this hits me hard, especially now. We have a three-year-old and a newborn, and life is a lot of work. It is not fun most of the time. So here's what she said. Now I'm a 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary the daily everydayness of life. 
Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mom back when I don't feel like it. The everyday life, the seemingly mundane, is so much of what God works in in our lives. 90% of Jesus' life was just working his job. And that whole time, God was working and preparing him. So what are some expectations you may have that have caused you to miss what God is doing in your life? And don't hear me wrong when I ask that question. I'm not saying, what are some expectations that cause you to miss out on what God is doing? I'm saying, what are some expectations that cause you to miss what God is doing in your life? Are you realizing what he's doing? Seeing the unexpected ways that he moves every day. And cherishing the unexpected journeys that he brings you on. I don't uh, know who came up with this phrase. I heard it at church I was at before. And I don't know if that person came up with it. But I didn't. But the phrase was this. Expectations are usually just premeditated resentments. We can so easily paint pictures of how we think people should be how we think things should be. And when they don't live up to it or they don't turn out that way, there's resentment. And Jesus in his hometown is the most painful example. What could be more clear than God in the flesh? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, preaching, healing, and working face to face among them. But their familiarity with, his, with this carpenter boy and their expectations of a grand king blinded them. Matthew shifts now to another story, but related. We go now to the throne room of King Herod at the beginning of chapter 14. And he gets a little thematic here because we see Herod's response to current events and then we go into a flashback of what happened to John the Baptist. And this story, once I started digging into all the people involved, rivals any soap opera or miniseries that is out there today. So let's read chapter 14, starting verse 1. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
Well, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. We have four characters here. The first one is the king, Herod Antipas, is who it was. This was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king during Jesus' birth. He was the one who killed all the male children because he heard that a king had been born. He was extremely jealous of his throne. Antipas reigned from 4 BC to 39 AD. They estimate Jesus' birth to be between 7 and 4 BC. One of the reasons is because of the regime change here between Herod the Great and his son Herod Antipas. And it mentions Herod the Great's passing in Matthew 2. But here's the thing that's important to our story. Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of the Arabian king Eretus. He was the king of the neighboring political region. So it's similar to like what we think of medieval times where they marry off the princess as an alliance. It's exactly what happened. So his marriage to this Arabian princess was an alliance with the neighboring region. We also have Philip. This is Herod's half-brother. And Herodias, the wife of Philip. And then we have the daughter of Herodias, whose name was Salome. So over the course of time, Herodias and Herod grew fond of each other. Herodias would obviously be in a better position to be married to the king. And she decided to leave Philip. Herod, probably flattered, decided to leave his wife which created a very intense political situation. In fact, years later, this act led to a war between the two areas. But they decided to leave each other's spouses, and they were married. There was one man who was very vocal about the immorality of the situation, and that was John the Baptist. In fact, he made such a noise about it that he was arrested in order to keep him quiet about their immorality. Probably for two reasons. One, the divorce from the Arabian princess created a lot of political tension, and having someone speaking out against the move would basically be throwing fuel on tinder. Two, Herodias and Herod, for that matter, were constantly being spoken against, which would not make them feel too good. Apparently, they were totally fine committing the act. They just didn't want to hear that it was immoral. So John the Baptist was arrested, put in prison, and Herod was afraid to execute him because the people loved John the Baptist and respected him as a prophet. 
So he just remained in prison. And one day, Herod has a birthday party. As I was researching this, I guess birthdays were forbidden in ancient Jewish culture. I'm not sure why, it's kind of strange, but they were forbidden. So that it shows you a little bit how disconnected he was with his people. He decides to have this grand birthday party. Herodias' daughter, his niece, Salome, dances for the king and his company. And Herod loved it. So much so that he offers to give Salome whatever she wants. He's probably slightly drunk at this point too. In Luke's account of the situation, he says, you can have up to half my kingdom. Salome has time to talk with her mother. Uh, The party could have lasted for days, or I mean, it could have been hours. She would have had time to go consult her mom. And Herodias sees the opportunity. So she convinces Salome to ask for the head of John the Baptist. She has the opportunity to finally get rid of the guy who was so public in denouncing their marriage. Surprised and regretful, Herod has John the Baptist executed without a trial, which was required back then. No one could be executed without a trial. He seems to be haunted by this, and he seems somewhat regretful, because when he hears of Jesus' ministry, his first thought is, John the Baptist came back from the dead. So he's obviously haunted by what he did. And there might be a slight bit of fear. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was the greatest man to ever be born of woman. Herod executed the greatest man to walk the earth because of a foolish promise to a little girl. This is a different kind of rejection than what we just saw with Jesus. God's chosen messenger to usher in the true Messiah is killed unceremoniously because he spoke up for what was right and because a king made an incredibly short-sighted and foolish oath. But it is a similar rejection. God's work in Jesus and his hometown was rejected because it was simply not what they expected. God's work in John was rejected because they did not like the message of righteousness and justice. They missed what God was doing because they loved their sin. Think of it. Because of Herod's love for his position and his sin, he will go down in history as the king who killed the greatest man who ever lived because of a foolish promise to his young niece. Quite a legacy. And here's a a thought before we get to a couple closing thoughts. Isn't it, one thing that stuck out, it's interesting to me that the only thing offending everyone in both these stories is the one thing that they should have clung to. For freedom. The people of Nazareth were offended by the Prince of Peace because he did not meet their expectations of what a ruler should be or where a ruler should come from. 
The royalty of Israel was offended by John the Baptist, who was the one person in their lives speaking truth to them. Had they listened and heeded his warning, who knows what would have happened. Despite the people's offenses, God's redemptive work continued. So, there are two main ideas that jumped out at me about these two stories. And here's the first one. What we believe about Christ determines our response to Him. That might sound obvious and simple, but it's important for us to get. Even though Jesus was the image of the invisible God, the one who said, if you see me, you see the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. They saw him as nothing more than the neighborhood boy that they helped raise. They believed he was no different from them and they treated him that way. Instead of bowing down in worship, they were offended. Instead of repenting when hearing a message they did not like, they rejected. Don't take your faith for granted if you see Jesus for who he really is. And we have the same responses today. Many people think he's just a wise teacher, so they respect him, but he's not worthy of worship for sure. And that was a long time ago, so it's probably not as relevant as it was. We live in a different time. Or maybe he was just a Jewish prophet. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not Jewish. The other idea, along similar lines, what we believe about what God is doing determines our involvement in it. We see this in the activities of King Herod. Simply put, he didn't believe God was doing anything. While in front of his face stood the long-awaited herald of the coming king. As John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Messiah by preaching the kingdom of God, King Herod was preparing for adultery and political scandal. When those two kingdoms met, he believed what he, was, what he was doing was more important than what God was stirring. And he had the messenger killed instead of helping prepare for the coming kingdom. We need to keep our eyes on how God is moving and what he's doing. Always staying aware. That happened to me those years at Caribou. All I was thinking about was not working at Caribou while I was working at Caribou. But God was absolutely working in me and on me for all those years. But I would argue that I wasn't involved in it. He was doing it without me. Simply wishing that I was somewhere else. Are there any areas in your life where you miss what God is doing in you? Because you were wishing he was doing something else. The amazing thing is that God continues to work and to do a thousand things in our lives even when we don't notice. Or even worse, when we don't care. Or are actively opposing. But God still works. 
And this is the heart of the gospel that we see in these stories. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't care, when we were rejecting, when we were ignoring, God was continually working to bring about our redemption. And one day, you'll look back and say, oh, that's, that's what God was doing. And I'm at that point now. I don't regret any of the years I spent at Caribou. I learned a lot. And God worked so much in me. And week in, week out, Garth mentioned it, we do communion. And there's a table in the back and two up front here. And that's our way of weekly putting in front of our face this message. That even though we do our own thing, we might even be opposed to what God is doing, He is constantly working around us, bringing about redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the stories, for the events that You brought about, and Lord, we thank You that they were recorded so that 2,000 years later, we can look at them and talk about how You work day in, day out, whether we know it or not, in ways that we see or don't see. But Lord, I pray that you would daily just fill us with your spirit to help us see how you move and how you weave throughout our lives. Help us to be involved in what you're doing and experience it to the full so that we don't miss it. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.